0: Well, good morning, everyone. If you have a Bible, Romans chapter 5 is where I would invite you to turn to this morning, Romans chapter 5. While you're turning there, I just say I hope everyone had a very Merry Christmas and things went according to the way you planned them. And we all look forward to celebrating the new year here, all spared and Lord willing, in a few days. So I hope those good things will come to you the new year as well. So let me just say this. If you've been with us these past few months and and you're wondering why we're turning in our Bibles to Romans chapter 5 and not 1 Corinthians chapter 4, we are going to return to our studies in 1 Corinthians 4, all spared and Lord willing, the first Sunday of the new year. However, and I'd like you to listen, please. The main reason why we're holding off on coming to this section in 1 Corinthians is because beginning in chapter 5, We're going to learn that from 5 all the way essentially to chapter 10 is very heavy on moral instruction. And when everyone comes to this section or to their Bibles, um, learning about moral instruction, there's always two temptations which we have to avoid. The first temptation is to approach this section as a Pharisee. And then begin to minimize the God, God's grace in the gospel. So instead of doing good um, according to right standards, God's revealed will, God's moral law, and doing them, them from right motives, love God and love others, and then doing them for the right purpose so that we're pleasing to God and want to see God's kingdom grow and want to see the good of others um, be approached in our living, if we do this as a Pharisee, then that would begin to muddle these things by thinking that one's labor somehow earns God's favor. And what that would do to us is produce some kind of self-advancing pride so that we begin to look down on those who do not labor in the same way as we do. And this self-advancing pride then crushes uh, kindness and compassion out of the heart And its final effect then is, and this probably is the worst, is Christ is not looked on as a savior who is needed, but rather a coach who is needed to help us advance in life and advance past others. Hence, we starve our souls all the while we we feed our pride because people can't keep up with us. That's, that's the first danger. The second danger is to approach these moral instructions as if they don't really matter. And if we fulfill them fine, and if we do not, well, that's fine. Because after all, God will be fine with that. Isn't that what grace is for? But you see, if we do this, then we we've just demoted and cheapened the great work of Christ on the cross. And we mock God's holy standard, which we have failed to keep, which sent Jesus to his death. Okay, both dangers are attacking then the, the dignity of Jesus Christ and his saving work at the cross and what that work did. And as you pay atten- attention to the culture then, you'll know that these are the two great temptations. Uh, the former will lead you to no gospel sympathies. You know, what's wrong with them? Can't they, can't they change? They could change if they really wanted to, as in sexual immorality or homosexuality. So there's no gospel sympathy. Or the gospel uh, is, is um, then advanced for sinners. Excuse me, the gospel then becomes good advice for winners and not good news for sinners. And then the second is then no gospel loyalty. I, I can do what I like. God will be fine with that. And then therein, and denying the transforming power of God's grace in Jesus. And so those are the dangers that we have to be aware of when we come to moral instruction. And so to help us this morning. Not to do that, we're going to take a good look at uh, Romans chapter 5, beginning in verse 12. And before we read, let me just say one more thing. These dangers, what they'll also do, the, the Pharisee danger and the I can live as I like danger, they will, and we're going to learn this in 1 Corinthians, they're going to, they would kill all evangelistic zeal. They'll just destroy it because the life then is focused on the self and not God in his glory and to see his kingdom grow. Okay. So let's read then from our Bibles, chapter 12. I'll read and if you follow along all the way to the end of the chapter. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and and this way death came to all men because all sin. For before the law was given, sin was in the world. But sin is not taken into account where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command, as did Adam, who was a pattern of the one to come. But the gift is not like the trespass. For if the many died by the trespass of the one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by, that, by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? Again, the gift of God is not like the result of the one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation, but the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. For if by the trespass of the one man, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Consequently, just as the result of one trespass was condemnation for all men, so also the result of one act of righteousness was justification that brings life for all men. For just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. What a lovely phrase, will be made righteous. The law was added so that the trespass might increase. But where sin increased, grace increased all the more. So that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our, our Lord. And just remember in verse 21, that righteousness that brings eternal life is certainly not our righteousness. It is the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Okay, let's pray together as we prepare to begin. God and Father, we would be very wrong if we didn't pause just for a moment to tell you thank you for all the good things that you have done in the course of this year, 2014. We thank you for every meal that we ate, every bed that we were able to sleep in, the homes which you so richly provide for us. We thank you, Father, for the grace that forgave us of all our sins this entire year of 2014 and we thank you God that in your mercy and in your kindness you you set our Christmas tables you provided for us so that we could uh, give Christmas gifts and enjoy the gifts of others and we would thank you for this father for these times are precious they are most needed and we are very grateful God that you give these good things that we don't feel like we deserve but we certainly enjoy and now, God, it's no surprise to you how much help that we will need to listen and I will need to speak as we hear you speak, God, through your living word, the Bible. So please come now and, and rescue us and save us and help us to all your appointed ends for the glory of your name and for the glory of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, it takes no moral strength and certainly no spiritual power to be condemning and judgmental of others. It is I think the most treasured dialogue in the whole of the Bible as the religious conservative pharisee as their evil plans to condemn both Jesus and the woman caught in adultery was falling flat on its face that our lord began this conversation with the dear woman John chapter 8 verse 10 John says Jesus straightened up and asked her woman where are they has no one condemned you she said no one sir Jesus says then neither do I condemn you, grace. Go now and leave your life of sin. Truth. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. Grace and truth and perfect measure. And one of the most horrifying things in mere humans condemning others in their sins is that we ourselves are worthy of that exact same condemnation. Yes, one may be of the stock that gets it right more than others some of the time. But getting it right more than others some of the time has never been God's saving plan. It has never been the reason why the Christian no longer stands under condemnation. It has never been the righteousness that God will accept. Because getting it right most of the time has never been a righteousness that will save. Which is why I try my best to warn you as your pastor, beware of moralism where the gospel then is just good advice and not good news. And beware of self-righteous legalism, where we make our private list of do's and don'ts, even if it's a passionate list. And in that list, we are so certain that that list is the list, we are then foolishly compelled to pass that list out to others as a test, grading ourselves only on the curve. And I warn you also of therapeutic, moralistic deism. And the reason why I choose that word, because it's a real phrase, and I wanted you to know that I did some work over the Christmas holiday, because that's a pretty fancy word. Moralistic, or therapeutic moralistic deism, there. And what that is, is that God is whittled down to our personal life coach for our personal success, and not Savior, King, and Lord. Lord. In other words, then beware when one trusts in their ability to get it right most of the time as the basis of their standing with God so that pride and condemnation of others uh, spews out of us or we become so discouraged and depressed that we're not perfect like, quote, them. Therein all the gospel wonders which ought to be medicine for our sin-sick souls are kept in the medicine cabinet, not taken and therefore not enjoyed and then we become some of the most grumpiest Christians that the world has ever seen. And we need to know this. And, and sure, uh, the kind of moral condemnation makes for big business in the world of radio and television and the worldwide web. I mean, that's big business to condemn people and tell others how bad other people are. We understand this. But the kind of people who say, I never thought I would see the day. They just need to look in the mirror. Because that day has come. However... To condemn others with no gospel leaned on or presented in love makes for small minds, it makes for bad theology, and, and it certainly makes for the most pretentious and pompous kind of behavior for those in Christ who have been saved and are accepted not by their own good behavior, but by God's grace in Jesus. So as we consider then these words from God through the pen of Paul, explaining in part how Adam's disobedience doomed us all. It is always, always given in the context of the gospel alone that will make us right and that will keep us right even as we do battle daily and lose that battle daily in degrees with indwelling sin. So we read this about four months ago, I think, three or four months ago from a person named Thomas Merton. I'm just going to read it again because I think it fits this perfectly. Nothing is more impotent than mere moral teaching. What is the use of perpetually saying to people, be good or do good? You may, keep it, you may keep at it forever and not a soul will listen any more than a crowd on the streets will be drawn to church bells continuous call. But if instead of a cold ideal of duty, as beautiful and as dead as a marble statue... We preach Christ whose life is law incarnate and instead of urging purity by which our own evils make feeble, we re-echo Christ's heart-touching appeal, if you love me, keep my commandments. And instead of mocking morally lame people to walk, we point them to cry out, who will deliver me from this body of death, pointing them to Christ who breathes his living spirit into us to set us free from sin and death then our preaching of morality will actually be our preaching of the gospel. And so, the preaching of Jesus Christ. And did you like that line where he said, instead of mockingly, morally mocking morally lame people to walk, we point them to cry out? Uh, what comes to mind is, the, is the, uh, the parable of the Good Samaritan. Where he, that whole idea of being good was just cornering that man, and he couldn't be good enough. The way Jesus described, he needed to be good enough. And so instead of crying out to God, asking for mercy, he just kind of walks away, never to be heard of again. And that takes us to our first point then, number one, original sin. Now, original sin, in fact, if you have a worship folder, you can look at the back and you can kind of track with us along the way. Original sin is not a biblical phrase, but rather a biblical truth uh, coined by Augustine in the first century. And this truth helps us understand how sin entered into us or into this world. Because the world as we now have it is not the world that God, as God made it. Therefore, the transmission of the first sin and the effects of the first sin had on humanity at the fall is part of the way the Bible explains sin's awfulness and how sin touches every one of us. And what is original sin is, is not primarily the first or the or original sin committed by Adam and Eve. That's part of it. However, original sin refers to the transmission and the effect of the first sin committed by Adam and Eve, which came upon every man and every woman and every young person who has ever lived. So if your Bible is open, you'll see in verse 12 that word, Therefore. So the word therefore reminds us to keep the previous verses as the backdrop in our minds for what Paul is about to explain. And if you know your Bible, you know that Paul, when he writes, he never strays too far from the gospel. So he's been explaining in the previous verses the great wonder of God's mercy and Christ's selfless love towards sinners. So for example, verse 1, chapter 5, the Christian has been justified through what? Well, through faith. And they've been given peace with God only because of Jesus Christ. That's why we have peace with God, because of Christ. Then look at verse 8. The Christian is presented unquestionable love, explaining the fact that while we were yet sinners, while we were uh, thinking sin and saying sin and doing sin and maybe posting sinful things, at that moment, if you would, Christ died for us. And you see, that is to be remarkable. Then after that, Paul then begins the right of the transmission of the first sin and then the effect. First, the transmission, verse 12. Just as sin entered the world through or on account of one man. And that's how sin was transmitted to all of us. Sin enters because of one man, through Adam. Adam as the head bears the responsibility. Adam represented humanity. Adam is seduced by the evil one's subtleties and temptations applied to his wife Eve. And through the disobedience of Adam, original sin was transmitted to all humanity. Now, one of the simplest ways I have heard original sin's transmission explained is through the common cold. I mean, it's not the best example. It might have a few holes in it, but I think it helps. So you're in a family, and one of your family members gets a cold. And before you know it, you get a cold. And before you know it, someone else gets a cold. And before you know it, the whole house is in lockdown. Well, why? Because germs have spread and people are sick. And much the same way, which began with one man's rebellion, ends with the whole world being infected. That is the transmission of original sin. Sin came through Adam and it was passed down to every person who's ever lived. Adam says God stood in our place. Now, that's an important phrase. He stood in our place, transmitting sin to all. Now, this does not mean that we are not responsible for sins. It it does not. It simply means that Adam was us in the garden. Adam was us in the garden. So if we switched roles, we would be, if you would, Adam in the garden. So we're not sinners because we sin, but rather we sin because we are sinners born with the nature enslaved to sin. So no part of us is untouched by sin. No action of ours ours, is as good as it should be. So that we cannot earn God's favor no matter what we do. Meaning unless grace saves us and grace maintains us, then we are lost. Then we are lost. That's why I gave you the introduction that I gave you. We can't be judgmental. We have no right to be. Okay, that's original sin's transmission. Okay, so then what of it's effect? Well, God determined the effect of original sin. So he's not God's not going to explain to us why this is so. He just declares to us why this is so. And that's verse 12b. So the first effect of original sin was death. Death through sin, and in this way death came to all humanity. Verse 17a, by the trespass of the one man, Adam, original sin, death reigns. So death reigns in life. Our life is always on the clock. We do not know when death will come. Death is our great enemy. Its dust will settle on everything eventually. Death in our relationships. Humanity is separated from God. We're separated from others. Uh, We're separated from ourselves. If you doubt that, I mean, unfortunately, sometimes think of your Christmas tables. They're not always in quaint and quiet and kind as they should be. Well, why is that? Well, death in our relationships. Human separation because of sin. And if not dealt with, these separations will continue Eternally in a place the Bible describes as hell, separation from God, separation from others, and so on. So sin effect effect is death. And it was the principle established by God in the beginning. Disobedience will always bring death. You can read that in Genesis chapter two and three. Also sin then sin's effect is condemnation. That's verse eighteen A. You see it there? Just as the result of one trespass, original sin was condemnation for all humanity. And this known and felt uh, condemnation has pushed humanity to create all kinds of ways to either appease this condemnation. So, for example, a vigorous religious activity, good works, or personal penance, trying to make personal atonement for our personal sins. That's why some of the most zealous people we know may be some of the biggest sinners as they try to appease God this condemnation that they feel by doing oh so many good works so they can feel better and that sinful thing is demoting the great work of Christ and the justification that he has won for us at the cross thinking that we can win it back by being better than ever or better than anyone else so that's one of the ways we try to appease that condemnation We also try to create uh, ways to silence that condemnation. So we pursue pleasures and wealth and personal fulfillment, making us think that if we feel better about ourselves, or we might advance past others, then we can move past the condemnation we feel. A kind of a Christian superstar. I think that's one of the things that affects our time. A Christian superstar standing out above the rest of us poor saps. So we try to appease this condemnation, we try to silence this condemnation, and we also try to reject this condemnation. So the secular mind does its best to create all these arguments saying all this God talk and all this guilt talk and all this sin talk, that's what's ruining our world. So let's just put an end to it all together. And so the effect of original sin, says the Bible, is death, is condemnation, and finally verse 19a is total depravity. Through the disobedience of one man, the many were made sinners. Just like made righteous, made sinners. And the point Paul is making here in this verse and in this section is that we have absolutely no hope apart from God's work in Christ which comes by way of grace to remove the condemnation that we feel and that we face, to remove the death that we're coming to and to remove sin's effect." Which makes that phrase, in Christ, which Paul uses 76 times in all his writings, in Christ, so fantastically important. All humanity's solutions, every one of our solutions, are not in humanity. It's in Christ. It's in Christ. And you see, that's why David cried out in Psalm 51, 5, as a middle-aged man. Get that, as a middle-aged man. Surely I was sinful at birth. From the time my mother conceived me, what was he doing? He was declaring in one sense the effect of original sin and in another the transmission of original sin. And Paul then, beginning in chapter 5, there in verse 12, traces all this back to the one sin, the sin of one man, Adam. Consequently, when Adam said and decided that he would not, he would not let God tell him what was good and bad for him and he would seek and decide for himself, The whole human race was there in Adam making the same horrible choice. And that's the effect of original sin. Death, condemnation, total depravity. Now, if you're sitting there and you have any doubt about the transmission and the effects of original sin, then let me just ask you two sensible questions. One I just thought of, and the other in the notes. So there's no charge for the one I just thought of. It probably isn't that good, (laughs) but... So just think how, how just one sin that you committed or maybe someone else has committed ruins so much of, of life. Just think. Just one sin has ruined so much of life. Just think. And then think about this. Isn't it amazing that none of us this morning had to, had to learn how to sin I mean, isn't it amazing that none of us here as children, or when we were children, needed to learn how to lie to others, or needed to learn how to be jealous of others. We didn't need to learn how to steal, or to be greedy. We didn't need to learn how to be selfish, or prideful, or rude, or slanderous, or arrogant. And none of us needed to to learn how to scream, and shout, and pinch, in anger, which is, I was thinking this, Christians, that's what my sister used to do to me. She used to pinch me when she was mad, and holy cow, it hurt. She didn't need to learn that. She didn't need a special class. She didn't need to go online and watch a webinar or put in a DVD to learn how to do those things. Our parents, our dad never stopped us and said, who, you know, who taught you to be disobedient? Because your disobedience is pathetic. I'll show you how to be really disobedient. You go get your mother and I'll show you disobedience. See, none of those things had to happen. Because sin, unfortunately, comes naturally to all of us. That is what Paul is writing and one of the reasons why we should thank God for our Bible then is because the Bible takes the time to explain all this. And we can learn these things. So why is it that no one had to teach me how to lie or hate or hoard or lust or covet? Why? Why is it that I naturally know how to do these things? Well, the New City Catechism helps us. Because they asked the same question in a similar fashion. I think it was week 14. Did God create us unable to keep his commands? Listen carefully. Did God create us unable to keep his commands? No. But because of the disobedience of Adam and Eve, we are all born in sin and guilt, unable to keep God's law. And that's exactly what Paul is writing in Romans 5, verse 12. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way, death came to all people because all sin. And that takes us then to our second point, the moral law. And the reason why that's uh, our second point, because I think it goes like this. So a person might say, okay, so far so good. I'm tracking with you. I understand this. Uh, I know my husband. I know my wife, whatever. But okay, well, let me ask you this question. (laughs) Since no one can keep the law, okay, so what's the law's purpose? Can we just chuck it? Just leave it alone? Well, there's a gentleman named John Flavel that lived in another time. He begins to help us understand when he writes this. One of the effects of original sin is an instinctive prejudice in favor of our own selfish desires. We see things as they are not because we see them centered on ourselves. Fear, anxiety, greed, ambition, and our hopeless need for pleasure all distort the image of reality that is rejected, reflected excuse me, in our minds. In other words, what he's saying is we all have our own self-laws and our fallen nature, and we have our self-governing ways. And of course, the trouble with it is that we begin to think that God is actually thinking like us, and that God is actually deciding like us, because God would actually live like us. And what the moral law of God does is expose our self-governing evils, and in order to correct this, the law of God clearly reveals the holy nature of God and the holy will of God. So first then, God's moral law is God's revealed will. And it helps us know the nature of God and the will of God. That's why the commandments are so important, the Ten Commandments. Because morality is not arbitrary. God does not operate this way. His law is rooted in his character. His will is rooted in his character. Both are unchanging. Now, if you think about that, that can be tremendously helpful to us. Unchanging truth. Unchanging moral truth. Secondly, then, not only does the moral law help us to know the nature and the will of God, so God is not such a mystery, it also reveals our sinful nature and all of our inclination to sin. Which means God's law, as we say around here, is a dirt-revealing mirror. And when the law is held up, when God's moral standard is held up, the sensible, honest person would have, have to understand that their sinful nature is quite clear. And when the law is held up, we certainly cannot point to others. We can't. But we have to seek forgiveness that we so dreadfully need. You see, what the law does is zip our lips. Romans 3, verse 19. When the law is revealed, every mouth silence, and the whole world held accountable to God. Or Christ's words in John 8. You without sin, cast the first stone. Or when Jesus spoke to the rich young ruler, he takes the first commandment uh, to the rich young ruler's context. Sell everything and give it away. The rich young ruler wanted eternal life. Jesus points to the sin and which was standing in his way. Which is it going to be, son? Gold or God? Think it out. The rich young man said, well... You know, I've made the right choices before. Just tell me the right choice and I'll make that choice. Get, Jesus gives him the truth, gives him the right choice, and he finds out that he cannot make the choice. And so the apparently wise, rich, young ruler chose gold and not God. And he walks away. He walks away when he should have cried out, Will you please save me? Will you please save me? Isn't it funny when you read the Gospels, it's the prostitutes, it's the sin-filled tax collectors, it's all the bad people that have such an easy time with this, and all the smart ones, the experts in the law, the Pharisees, the smart ones, they can't ever get to this. They can't ever get to this. So Jesus took the first commandment, no other gods but God, to reveal to the young rich ruler that he had another little god named Gold. And because the moral law of God revealed his sin and revealed his unwillingness to obey God, the whole thing just shuts down and he walks away. And you can read in the Gospels, in Mark's Gospel, and Jesus lets him. He lets him. Okay, the moral law of God, it reveals God's character and his will. It reveals our sin and our disobedience. And thirdly, the moral law of God helps us to know what it means to live a life pleasing to God. So often in our day, many struggle with knowing the will of God. Countless sermons on knowing the will of God. Listen, in the moral law of God and the teachings of Jesus Christ, the moral teachings of Christ, you have the very heartbeat, you have the very foundation of what it means to obey the will of God. And Jesus summarizes the will of God in, in two great commandments. Love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. The epistles do the same thing. The moral teachings of Christ, they deepen and reapply these two commandments to all of what life is lived like in the kingdom of God. And listen very carefully. When you take those two commandments, how to love God and how to love your neighbor, it always involves community. It always involves community, which is why self-help books cannot help us here. Because they advance the self at the cost of the whole and use God's gifts for their own personal gain. And what happens then is pride grows and like the evil one who wanted to stand out and stand past God, one loses a love which God's moral law contains because we want to stand out and stand past others. Jesus would often say to his disciples to obey God. John chapter four, verse 34, uh, to obey God is my meat. It is my food. My food is to do the will of him who sent me. And loved ones, what was the will of God for the perfect human, Jesus Christ? Well, it was to love God and love others by surrendering his life to God's will, which meant a cross. And you see, he's our example in everything. And that leads then to the final great work of the law of God. Thank God for this final great work. The law of God not only exposes our sin, but it shows us why we need a savior. And that takes us to our final point. Because the moral law of God did not provide us with a ladder to climb to reach acceptance with God. Instead, the law is a mirror that exposes our sin and sends us, hopefully, to Jesus Christ as savior. And that's why the last point is the gift of righteousness and you see, this is God's only answer to original sin and to a remaining sin. The gift of uh, imputed, or if you like, given righteousness through Jesus Christ. Because God requires complete heart in obedience all the time. And, loved ones, as we said in the beginning, we are unable and we are unwilling to give this. We are unable to love God with all our heart and all our soul and all our mind and all our strength all the time. So, what do we do? Try harder? And what about our neighbors? It's the same thing. So how can we condemn others? We can't. And as a brief aside, just for future reference, you ask yourself the question, what's easier to do? Condemning others in their sin? Or tell or befriend others of the one who died for sin? Which one's easier? I mean, I think it takes the intellect of a mushroom to condemn others. But we need the heart of Christ and we need the mind of Christ to share with others their great need of a Savior. Which is why in these verses, Paul keeps referring to God's salvation to free us in Christ as a gift. Look at your Bibles, verse 15. But the gift of God. Verse 16, again, the gift of God. Verse 17, the gift of righteousness. Verse 19, through the obedience of one man. The gift, Christ. Of righteousness. The gift of God is based on the work of Christ, the work that brings righteousness. That's the title of the talk. The work, God's work, that brings righteousness. So we learn that in original sin, the sin of one man, Adam transmits sin into the whole human race. Its effect is death, condemnation, total depravity. Now we learn that in the work of one man, this is the good news. One man, our Lord Jesus Christ, the many through faith in Christ are given the gift of his righteousness. The gift, verse 21, of eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's a fancy way of saying in Christ. Then look at verse 17. For if by the trespass of the one man death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through... Their tremendous commitment to the gospel. No, through the one man, Jesus Christ. So when you actually look at your Bibles, Jesus Christ is our righteousness and we relate to God based only on the performance of Jesus Christ. Verse 18, Jesus Christ is our justifier. The result of one act of righteousness was justification that brings life for all men. Therefore, Christians may only relate to others then based on the fact That our righteousness, our goodness, the ability to do good is a gift, is a gift. I mean, if you think about that, doesn't that make us a lot easier to live with if we really, really believe that? I think it will. So that Christ then is the one maintaining the standard of the Christian with God. Christ, then, is the righteousness that we cling to. Christ is the righteousness we approach God with. And Christ is the righteousness we then draw near to others with. Because the Christian serves God. Listen very carefully. We serve God not for life, but from life, from his life. He is the strength behind all our good and good deeds. And so we're going to close it here. So yes, the moral law of God matters. Don't think it doesn't. It's not the method of our salvation, but the moral law is our family code. It will be our joy to try and live up to it and will bring pleasure to our Father in heaven who loved us and saved us because we couldn't keep it the way we needed to. And yes, of course, grace is needed for we have no hope or standing with God without it. And by, by grace, then, the fear of sin's punishment Is removed. And yes, judgmentalism is absolutely forbidden as it blinds us from our own personal experience of our own daily failures. And so, what God has joined together, listen carefully the moral law, His grace in Jesus, and the wrongness of judgmentalism, what God has joined together, let no one separate and let no one ignore. So I have a quote and then we're done. All year long I've been trying to find where can I put this quote from Calvin in a sermon. And no kidding, the last sermon of the year, here's Calvin's quote. I'm going to read it to you and then we're going to be done. We see that our whole salvation and all its parts are comprehended in Christ. We should therefore take care not to derive the least portion of it anywhere else. If we seek salvation, we are taught by the very nature of Jesus' name that it is of him. If we seek any other gifts of the Spirit, that we be found in Christ's anointing. If we seek strength, it lies in Christ's dominion. If purity in his conception, if gentleness, it appears in his birth. For by his birth, he was made like us to all respects, that he might learn to feel our pain. If we seek redemption, it lies in Christ's passion. If acquittal in his condemnation, if remission of the curse in his cross, if satisfaction in his sacrifice, if purification in Christ's blood, if reconciliation in his descent into hell, if mortification of the flesh or sanctification in Christ's tomb, if newness of life in his resurrection, if immortality in the same, if inheritance of the heavenly kingdom in his entrance into heaven, if protection, if security, if abundant supply of all blessings in his kingdom, if untroubled expectation of judgment in the power given to him to judge, in short, since rich stores of every kind of good abounds in Christ, let us drink our fill from this fountain and from no other. For all blessings, listen, all blessings are in Christ alone. Christ alone thank you for your attention if you have any questions when we're done I'm going to stay up here for a while I'll be happy to try to answer those questions for you let's bow together and pray our gracious God and Father how we thank you for the wonder and the glories of the gospel we thank you Father that your saving plan was just that a saving plan when the songwriter says that we will not boast in anything no gifts no uh, words or wisdom that we will boast in Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection. This is truth, Father. This is truth that we stand on, and this is truth that we take into the world, and this is truth that we meet uh, our brothers and sisters and our fellow human beings with. There is no condemnation for those in Christ. And Father, it would be horrible for us to condemn others um, without Christ. We share the love of Christ. We tell them the truth about their sin and the soon coming day of your son's return but we don't judge, we don't condemn, we're not equipped for these things. So Father, help us as we close out this year that you've given and then all spared approach the new year. Help us to be really, really good at being really, really good in Christ. We need it, God. We pray for the grace then of Jesus to abound in our hearts. So may the love of God and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be ours both this morning and all mornings until Christ returns or he calls us home. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.